0: I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, and we'll continue working our way through this uh, fall series. I think we're on week uh, five or so. Philippians, uh, you'll find in your Bible after Romans and Acts and uh, well before you get to Hebrews and Revelation. It's a smaller book, though, so it can uh, sneak past you if you're not careful. We are looking at this book that the Apostle Paul wrote to this church in Philippi around the year 65 A.D., some 15 years or so after he had planted and established this church in this city that just was to the north of the Aegean Sea and its location. Paul had written this letter from prison, having completed his second missionary journey where he established the church, and then his third, he's in prison now, and he's writing these words to this church. And if you've been around the church a little bit, you know that churches can be a, a bit like families. In fact, sometimes we call this church our church family because that's part of what it is. And every family, every church goes through ups and downs in different times, and good times, times of agreement where you seem to be going along well, and times of disagreement and struggle. Churches are no different. From families, we call some, I guess, healthy and some dysfunctional, and so is the case here. Philippians, it would seem, compared to some of the other churches we read about in the New Testament, is a fairly healthy congregation. But Paul writes to them today to remind them what a precious gift it is to have unity among themselves and to seek to keep that unity, to be used of the Lord in the world as a unified body. He wants them to keep the gas pedal down on all their efforts to be linked closely to one another, and I think Paul would encourage us today with the same thing for us and our church body as well. I invite you to stand with me in honor and recognition of God's Word. I'll read it aloud as you read along silently, Uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 through chapter 2, verse 4. And that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ. Any comfort from love. Any participation in the spirit. Any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. You may be seated. As you do, let me pray for us. Oh, Father, we now pray specifically for uh, this time in your word. Oh, Lord, this time of seeking to know you and experience you through your word. Let us do that now. Strengthen me and equip me to share good things from your word For us, we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. I don't know if you can see what I've got up here in my hand. I recently saw that it was listed as one of the top inventions of all time—a Swiss Army knife. I've got a little bit of a collection of these. Uh, This one was not given to me when I was uh, at this point, but my grandfather on my dad's side loved to give uh, gifts, and he had a tendency to give gifts that were not quite geared to the age that you were. He was sort of always looking ahead. So at the ripe old age of five, I received from my poppy a Swiss Army knife, a weapon of destruction put into my hands, And my parents, which are normally very sound of mind people, decided their plan for Swiss Army Knife was to allow me to put it in my dresser, in my room, but I was not to ever touch it. Well, temptation prevailed, and you can still see from my ring finger the... Uh, symbol of that with my first round of four stitches that came with that plan, and immediately the parents readjusted the Swiss Army knife plan. The uh, next year, my grandfather uh, gave me a weight set, a weight set at age six, so it's just kind of his uh, style. But I got this one, I think, in junior high, and it's got all kinds of stuff in it, a screwdriver, Of course, several blades, a corkscrew, you name it. I saw, uh, looked up online, they introduced one in 2006 that was called the Giant, kind of a misnomer for a pocket knife, but it has 87 devices in it and does 141 things. They've come out with one in just the last couple of years that has a flash drive on it, has a laser pointer, and even an MP3 player built into it. Well, Swiss Army knives are remarkable because of all the things that you can do with them, right? But what really makes them exciting is that all of it is packaged into one thing, into one unit. In fact, one that you can just keep right by your side as the user in your pocket. A lot of diversity of functions, but put together into one package, one unit to work together to do whatever you want it to do, pretty much. And as we look at these verses today, if you'll allow me to carry the analogy over, there's some similarities to the church. The church has a diversity of people with abilities and functions and backgrounds and talents and interests and desires and passions. We all come with all of those things. And the beauty of the church, like that Swiss Army knife, is that God, through his grace, somehow is bringing us all together to achieve his function in the world, to do what He wants to do and build His kingdom, and to have us function in a unified way. That's the beauty of it. In a sense, we remain close to Him. We fit in His pocket as well. As you look at these verses today, and you can follow along with me in your worship guide, I think they convey to us this main idea, the worship guide section is towards the back of your worship guide. Is this main idea? Since believers enjoy union with Christ, we should unite with each other in a manner that's worthy of Christ. Since believers enjoy union with Christ, we should unite in a manner that's worthy of Christ. We might add diverse believers. Since diverse believers are you have that union in Christ We should unite in that way. And let me go ahead and just mention this because we have this sort of main idea every week, and it occurred to me the other day I've never really explained why we do that. I think some of it's self-explanatory. It's nice to be able to get our thoughts organized, and obviously we trust that God in each passage of Scripture has some main point to communicate to us. But it's also nice to just have something when you walk away from church to be able to say, okay, that's the main thing that we talked about. And you'll notice each week as we have generally some kind of main idea there that I try to set it up so that we see an indicative statement, a reality, some truth in the first part of that statement, and then something we're to do, an imperative, something we're to believe, some action we're to take, some way we're to grow in the Lord. So, too, today, believers enjoy union with Christ, so we should unite in a manner that's worthy of Him. We take a look at these verses. We see a theme coming out, and I want to start with this. And that is this idea of our union with Christ. And until we get union with Christ and begin to understand it, then we really can't fully understand it the unity that God calls us to. And we don't really have a propelling motivation towards the unity that God calls us to with one another. It's a tricky thing to get diverse people to be able to function together in any organization. Maybe for you this idea of union with Christ is something you've heard about before. You understand it. You feel like you've got some concept of it in your mind. Maybe it's the first time you've ever heard that phrase today. Wherever we are, even if we are familiar with the idea, we don't really put it into practice in living out that unity with one another, do we? We're either ambivalent towards one another in the church family, or we might feel like we've got things together. We function just fine as a screwdriver, I don't need to be put together with all those other devices so closely together in that Swiss Army knife. Or we feel like we don't have much purpose at all. Or the baggage or the things in our life make us very concerned that if we got close to other people, they might see that we're just really the toothpick that goes into the end of that Swiss Army knife. Nothing too Glamorous. And, of course, if we want to be even more honest, as we approach one another and think about how we're supposed to love and work together as a church body, it's easy for us to have a critical attitude towards one another. To look around and prop ourselves up by looking at the things around us, the folks around us, look at their weaknesses and foibles, and then somehow lift ourselves up by evaluating those so this is a struggle and the struggle is not just for us to obey some command god says be unified so we ought to be unified it's true but it actually goes beyond that and john 17 highlights this if you want to turn there with me in your bible you can matthew mark luke and john towards back towards the beginning of the new testament john 17 says this and i'm actually going to Blast a shotgun blast of verses from the Bible here over the next uh, five minutes or so so just be prepared you don't have to look them all up some of them I think are listed in your worship guide but let me look at John 17 first Jesus says these words in his pre- high priestly prayer this is called it's his prayer right before he's about to go and be arrested and be crucified on our behalf so he's pleading with God for the believers at that time, and he makes it very clear that he's pleading with God for us as well today. He says in verse 20 of John 17, I do not ask for these, just you know, his disciples only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 22, The glory that you have given me I have given to them, and they may be one as we are one. I in them, you and me, that we may become perfectly one, listen again, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Oh, it's crucial That we have a message to share with the world, that we convey the reality of who Jesus is, that we speak salvation in Him. But Jesus is reminding us here that we are a message. How we function together as a body, our unity and love for each other speaks a message to the world. Do you believe that today? Scriptures tell us it's vitally important for us. Flipping back to Philippians chapter 1, before we talk about these two things in a little bit more depth, our union with Christ and then our application of it, uniting with each other, verse 27 of Philippians 1 could be a little bit confusing, could be a little bit challenging. It says, "...only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ." Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, what is that talking about? If you've been around Cross Creek Church at all, or paged through your Bible, hopefully you've seen this message that we are saved, we are made right, declared right before God, simply by what Jesus has done and by faith in Him. So what is this saying, living in a manner worthy of the gospel? Well, if we read it as living in a way to earn or merit the gospel, then we're reading it wrong. We're reading it backwards. What the Apostle Paul is saying is that because of the gospel working in our lives, we should want to live in a way that reflects all of that, all of the goodness and grace that God has given us. So live in a manner that reflects the gospel, worthy of the gospel in that sense. What does he tell us are all the benefits in the gospel, let's take a look at this and talk about this idea of union with Christ. Uh, you know, I, I occasionally uh, try to do jokes in the, uh, in the time of our sermon time here, and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't, but today I'm just going to talk about jokes. The why did the chicken cross the road jokes are always been amusing to me. They go back uh, to the 1800s, actually, began in some magazine. Of course, the first one was Why the Chicken Crossed the Road to Get to the Other Side. That was the original. A lot have come along the way since then. Uh, Why didn't the skeleton chicken cross the road? Why didn't the skeleton chicken cross the road? Because he had no body to go with him. Because he had no body to go with him. Y'all are slow on that one. Why didn't the duck cross the road? Why did the duck cross the road to prove that he's no chicken? And then the last one, which is pertinent for today, is why did the mouse cross the road? Because he was stapled to the chicken. Because he was stapled to the chicken. I like that one because when I think about it, I think about our union, our being united with Christ. How are we going to cross through this life? How are we going to move through this life? Only by being linked up, by being attached, by being stapled to Jesus. And indeed, the Scriptures tell us that we are. Look with me at these verses in Philippians, starting in verse 28. Actually, the end of verse 28 tells us this. That our destruction is, our our salvation is from God. And then verse 29, for it's been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should believe. So this is a gift that's given to us. And then chapter 2, verse 1. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit... All of these things, all of these blessings that the Apostle Paul is referring to come because of the fact that we've been linked to Jesus. Now take a look at your worship guide if you'd like to. And I want to talk a minute about this union with Christ. The Scriptures remind us in a variety of places that we have been linked, that we've been attached to Christ and what they mean for our salvation. Number one, we are in Christ 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 tells us this, that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. We're in Christ. The Scriptures also remind us in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, that God has made known to us the mystery of the glory of God, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the beauty of it is this. Christ is in us and we are in him. We are linked together, unified with Christ. How does that unity play out in our lives? Well, it relates to every part of our salvation. I want you to see the beauty of this package of our unity with Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. Here's where you're going to get to have a tour of the, the Pauline epistles here quickly. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5 says, But God, who being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. How are we made alive? How do we come to new life spiritually? It's in Christ. Galatians 2, verse 20. There's one that if perhaps you were in... uh, Bible school growing up, you might have learned Galatians 2.20 reminds us that Paul is speaking of himself. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We're united with him through faith. Let's continue on. We won't touch on all of these, but we're united with Christ for our justifications. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 tells us God made Him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. In Him we might become the righteousness of God. Scriptures remind us this as well in Romans 8. Verse 38 through 39, I'll read it for you, you don't need to turn there. But of the glories of what Jesus has done for us in our perseverance in the faith, that God's going to stay with us even when we falter. Romans 8, verse 38 and 39, For I am sure that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I think you see the point, even without going into all the other passages that describe this. We have union with Christ. That's God's grace, God's gift to us. What does that mean for us? Well, in this context... What it means for us is that Paul is using it as a huge lever, a seesaw, if you will, and he's piling the weight of all that this union with Christ means on one side to try to lift up the other side that's a heavy weight to lift, and that is our reluctance to really live life in unity with one another. Now, Paul's not saying that we... Disconnect our brains or disconnect our personality, but he is saying that we live in a manner worthy of what Christ has done, of his unity, by uniting with one another. Take a look now with me at these realities, starting in verse 27 and and verse 28. Paul asked them that whether he comes to see them or is absent, that he might hear that they are doing what? Standing? Standing? Firm, in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He tells them in about four different ways that the way that we reflect our union with Christ, the unity we have with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, is by standing side by side with one another. He goes on and he speaks about the reason that this is important that we have opponents, he says. And then in verse 29 and 30, he says, For it's been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe but also suffer for his sake. You know, it's it's easy to get along when things are going well, isn't it? It's easy in our marriage or in our friendships or in relationships with co-workers and also in the church family to have things go well when everything's going great, when we're getting along wonderfully. The difficulty, the time when we really need God's grace to stand together, to have one mind and one purpose, is when difficulty comes, when suffering comes into our lives, when there's challenges, things pushing against that unity. The Apostle Paul is reminding us of incredible importance that we stand firm in this way. He goes on and he says in verse 2 of chapter 2, jump down there with me, of Philippians 2. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and one mind. If you count the references back in the previous chapter, he talks about one mind a number of times. I found somewhere this statement. said, some minds are like concrete. Thoroughly mixed up and permanently set. Thoroughly mixed up and permanently set. Well, if we're believers in Christ, we are permanently set. We're permanently set on the gospel, on who Jesus is, on that priority of salvation in Him. But Lord, help us if we get permanently set on things that we're actually mixed up on. Nobody likes to be shown that they're thinking wrong or even to realize that they're thinking wrongly. The Scriptures, though, call us not to be robots, not to be some uh, uh, detached people that don't have any thinking of our own, but to take our ideas, what we believe, what we think about who we should be as a body, a church family, about where we want to head and to bring those things together, submit them under Christ's lordship, and ask that by His grace, he show us how to bring them together for His glory. We're to have a single-mindedness as believers. It also tells us that we're to have the same love. I also found this somewhere. It says some Christians are kind and polite and sweet-spirited until you try to steal their pews. Isn't that the truth? We can seem to be on the surface so loving, so desires to be connected, but one little thing. Again, I'm talking about the church today, but think about your marriage relationship. Think about friendships. Think about work relationships. And sometimes they're built on such a surface and veneer that it's exposed when one little thing seems to be able to jar us off track. You know what the most common form of church planting of new churches being established in America is? Doesn't usually happen the way that our situation did. Being launched out, a daughter church, encouraged to go and begin a new church. The most common way that new churches are established in America is simply by people getting... Fed up and frustrated or having an ax to grind or whatever it is and pulling free from another group. That's how churches are typically begun. It's a great challenge for us to be unified. And the beauty of a church plant family is it draws people that want to engage and want to engage in ministry. That also makes us people that have strong perspectives on who we should be as a church family. So I just encourage us. I'm so thankful for the health that we have enjoyed as a church family, that we really have had, uh, to my knowledge, no significant matters of division. But like Paul writing to the Philippians, I want to encourage you all today that we should guard that as such a precious gift, that we should root it, if it's, if it's for us just an idea and a good thing, that we should take it and root it in this reality of our union with Christ. Because if it's not attached to that, I don't think it's going to last. I don't think it's going to last. It's like those first couple dates you go on back in high school or college or whenever, and you don't really know each other. And so the relationship is sort of based on a facade, both of you presenting sort of your best side. And somewhere along the way, hopefully... You come to a reality of something that's maybe a weakness or a difficulty in that other person. And then love, if it's going to be a strong relationship, takes you through that. You learn how to love that person with and including all of that. What if our church family would begin and continue to learn how to do that as well? Paul goes on and makes one more statement that I'll highlight, which to me, and this is just probably an indictment of my own pridefulness, to me is one of the most challenging statements in the Bible. you kind of got to read over it again. As listed here in our passage today. He says, In humility, consider others, and this says more significant, than yourselves. The NIV one's a little more challenging. Consider others better than yourself. Consider others better than yourself. I think we'll begin to know that all of the reality of the union of Christ and our salvation is beginning to work in our hearts and lives when we start to actually do that. The gospel in itself requires humility. You have to acknowledge before the living God that you're flawed, that you don't know everything, that you don't have everything together, and that you need help, you need salvation. It's so amazing then that when we start with that starting point, that's the centerpiece of who we are as a church, that it's so difficult for me, and I suspect I'm not alone, to look at other people and realize that I need them, that I might be wrong and ways that they're, in fact, better than myself. I've shared before, and I'll conclude with this, and it's not in any ministry setting that any of you know about. This is long before we were even in Birmingham. But I worked together in ministry, working together in ministry for the Lord, right, with a gentleman. And I love him. I love him to this day. But I honestly spent a good bit of the first six months working with him focused on all the ways that I was better than him. Certain skill sets, certain things, personality. I just thought I'm better than him. And I don't know if it was a Bible study or my personal Bible reading, but I came across that bullseye verse from Philippians there. And let me tell you what I had to do. Maybe this will be helpful for you as you think about even people in this room that perhaps you feel that way about. I had to take out a sheet of paper. This is how a messed up I am and prideful. And I had to force myself to write down on that sheet of paper all the ways that that gentleman was, in fact, greatly superior to me. I didn't solve everything about our relationship, but, boy, it began to soften my heart and began to change our relationship. Folks, what will it look like for us as a church family to maintain the the unified posture that we have and even to grow in it? Let's not be ambivalent about each other. Let's not think that we don't need each other. We're a screwdriver that doesn't need the rest of the knife. Let's not be a bunch of uh, Swiss Army tools sprung all over this floor up here. Let's Bring, by God's grace, those things together that we might function in a way that glorifies God and that as Jesus prayed a long time ago for his disciples and was praying for us, that through that, the world would see that Christ is in us. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we need your help. Lord, this is one of those things, it is so easy to talk about as some kind of concept or to think about as some sort of idea, unity with one another. Father, but so very difficult for us to live out, Lord, when the rubber meets the road. When we start perhaps to grind against one another, or when we've just been around each other long enough to see those foibles and flaws that we each other have. Oh Lord, let us continue to emerge as a church from the honeymoon phase, and let us grow into a mature love for each other. And Lord, I sincerely pray that as we seek to do that, that the Lord would see The light of you shining through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.